The Ear to Asia podcast is made available on the Jakarta Post platform under agreement between the Jakarta Post and the University of Melbourne. Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia. Japan, in the mid-2000s, began to consider lowering the BMI cutoff of what it would consider obese, and it ultimately lowered the BMI to 25. So Japan, at this point, began what is often thought of as a moral panic around an obesity epidemic. It is at the level of the individual, and there is so much stigma that is attached to it. So to try and fight against that, it requires a greater understanding about how we talk to people around issues of the body, how we are sensitive to the narratives and the lived experiences of people, and how we rejoice in all bodies. In this episode, Framing and Shaming Body Size in Japan – Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialist at the University of Melbourne. In Japan, slender bodies are prized, while portlier ones are shunned, and body size is regarded as a personal responsibility. Social and biological factors contributing to a person's physique are often ignored, even as the sedentary jobs and long work hours of Japan's highly urbanised population increasingly play a role in dietary choice and opportunities for physical activity. Japan's government views the trend of increasing average body weight as a public health problem in the making and has set about enacting policies to address it. Yet at the same time, public services like Japan's famously efficient rail system have failed to keep up when it comes to accommodating the increasingly diverse body sizes of the Japanese public. So how is Japan's concept of body image evolving? How do those with non-conforming body sizes feel about themselves? And how are they made to feel by their social and physical environment? And what impacts do social and behavioural expectations around gender roles have on maintaining the desired body size? Joining me to unravel the complexities behind body image, body weight and health in Japan a gender studies specialist, Associate Professor Claire Marie from Asia Institute, and cultural anthropologist, Dr. Cindy Sturtstriderun, who joins us from Arizona State University. Claire, welcome back to Ear to Asia and welcome, Cindy. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Ali. It's wonderful to be here. Well, it's lovely to have you both. Let's start by putting some context around our discussion. Cindy, culturally, How important is body size in Japan and how does that importance vary across age and socioeconomic groups? Yes. So I think one thing to keep in mind is that for humans in general, our bodies are one of the things that signal information. And so when we think about the specific context of Japan, we think about the ways, for example, that children are socialized early on, for example, to wear particular kinds of clothing at the preschool, to comport their bodies in particular ways. And this, of course, over time leads to sort of body shapes being normalized. Whether people fit into them or not is is not the question, but this normalization of particular body sizes and ways then of maintaining that body size. In Japan, Is it more significant, for example, than in other countries that you've studied, or would you say that it's similar? Yes, I wouldn't say that it's more significant. I would just say that there are particularities to Japan that might not hold the same importance in 
other places, for example. So if I think about body size in particular, or body shape, we might think about how in Japan, the very infrastructure that people interact with on a daily basis, bus seats, train seats, these are molded and shaped in particular ways by industry, and they're only a certain size and they don't come in larger sizes. And so if your body doesn't fit these seats, then you perhaps don't sit down as often or, you know, you feel out of place or it can be stigmatizing. Um, in the U.S., there are different aspects of infrastructure that remind people on a daily basis that their body is not fitting in. Cindy, you just talked about the U.S. there, but what about other countries that we might be able to get a comparison with? Because I know that you're in a research group that's also done work in Paraguay and also Samoa. Yes. So we've just done some interesting work um, where we were comparing across these four sites of uh, the U.S., Paraguay, Samoa and Japan. And there are some things that we learned that are very similar. For example, one of the things you mentioned in the intro, this idea that individuals are increasingly feeling responsible for their own body size and their own body weights. But we also learned, for example, that people in Paraguay do a lot more what we might say is direct statements about people's bodies. So they might say, oh, you've gained so much weight, what's going on? And they'll be very direct often about mentioning someone's weight. And that's something we absolutely didn't find in Japan. And it's very much not done in the US as well. Samoa though, as well, we find um, people will talk more directly sometimes about the body. Sometimes they'll be told that your body is looking too thin. And what's going on um, is someone not taking care of you appropriately. And so, again, what we're finding here is this sort of reshaping of body ideals, but the ways that it gets expressed or the particularities where someone feels less like they fit in shift across these different sites. Claire, if I can bring you in, how has the focus on weight in Japan changed over time? If we go back, say, to mid-last century, was there a very different narrative about body size? I think so. If we put it in a historical framework, in the middle of the last century, Japan is emerging from colonizing the area and also devastation with the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings. And we have a population who is underfed, malnourished, and severely fatigued, and are suffering different forms of trauma. So the body is a very different concept to the one that we have, perhaps, in contemporary Japanese social contexts and cultural contexts. If we look towards the representations of body in film in the 1950s and 60s, the style and shape of what is considered to be an attractive body is perhaps a little different to what we might find in contemporary media as well. Even in the 1970s and 1980s, sizes and shapes and attractiveness appear in contemporary culture in ways that differ slightly to the present day. But we do note, for example, in cultural representations of the body across the globe, with the increase of what Cindy was just referring to in regards to personal responsibilities for the body and also the medicalization of obesity or large bodies. This drive and strive to reframe the narrative, particularly in popular culture, around the body itself and how we must control it and tame it. And there's a lot of research that has happened on the global stage, uh, very famous in gender studies, is Bordeaux's work on the body 
which uh, looks at how there's a shift to achieving the slender body, the toned body, and anything that deviates from that ideal is abject, something that is not only to be pitied, but which is a source of cultural disgust. So within the Japanese um, makeover media that I've studied as part of the work that I do, this before and after, the large body before and going through this process of slimming down, then emerging as a better self, a more lovable self, a more employable self, a kind of a morally good self who is in charge and taking control of themselves and has overcome, has not given in, has strength within themselves to go on this journey and uh, to achieve positive results. And we see that, you know, in Australian culture as well. The biggest loser and uh, things like that are examples of that kind of makeover transformation where you reframe uh, the body into a particular style, a particular shape, a particular musculature, and um, also through clothing, accessories, lifestyles, etc. Claire, do you see Japan as, as any different or do you think that that particular trend is, is almost universal? Well, I think we have to be careful about framing things as universal uh, because we're talking about neoliberal markets. So do they go to all corners of the globe? That is something that is probably debated. And as Cynthia said, there are particular local articulations around this. In the Japanese societal context is annual medical checks, health checks that are done through education and through places of work that uh, we don't see on the same scale in Australia, for example. Within that annual check where the workforce goes en masse to have their health checked, uh, there are within that discourses around the size and shape of people's bodies as well that emerge that are perhaps a little different to how they emerge in Australia because there is not that system. I want to return to that, the medicalization, as you say, of weight and those annual health checks. But first, I suppose, just a picture of how many people in Japan are deemed to be overweight? Cindy, what percentage of the population is deemed to be overweight? And I guess what's the definition of overweight? Because Japan actually has its own version of the BMI or the, or the body mass index, doesn't it? Yes, it uses uh, different cutoff points for determining um, a category that would be labeled something like overweight, obese versus normal weight versus underweight. If you go by sort of global standards that the WHO uses, Japan, along with places like South Korea, always rank the lowest in terms of looking at obesity as defined by the BMI. So the WHO uses a cutoff of 30, a BMI of 30, and above would put you into a category called obese. And I know that we don't speak in writing, but that would be with a capital O because I want to underscore that this is a medicalized way of understanding this and that there's a lot of controversy around the BMI itself. Having said that, there has been research done that has suggested that East Asian people have similar health issues at lower BMIs. So when that research was sort of trending in the mid-2000s, Japan began to consider lowering the BMI cutoff of what it would consider obese. And it ultimately lowered the BMI cutoff of obese to 25. And so as of 
2019, about 29% of men are in this obese category. So that would be a BMI of between 25 to 30. And there are about 21% of the population of women in that BMI category. When we look at a, at a higher BMI, 30 and above, we notice that it's the same then as what gets reported in global statistics around 4%, 4.5% for the entire population. So Japan at this point in the mid early 2000s, began what is often thought of as a moral panic around an obesity epidemic. Which essentially was created by changing the benchmark other than anything else. Correct. Yes. And I think that was fed through watching rising healthcare costs that then became attributed to particular health issues that are now talked about sometimes as lifestyle disease but also match up with metabolic syndrome as Japan defines it. So in this environment where you have this medicalization of weight, you have this change to the BMI, we have the annual medical checks, which we'll explore a bit further in a minute. But Claire, in that environment, how do people in Japan who are overweight view themselves compared to how society views them? Well, I think that that is a very personal question for anyone who is labelled as being comparatively large to what is the norm or expected to be the norm. It's a very personalised thing. Each person will be different. I don't think we can generalise it in that way. Claire, sorry, I I have to agree with you fully. I wondered, though, if I could share a small story from uh, the summer of 2017 when I was doing some work in Japan. Sure. If we have time for a very quick vignette. Thank you. So I had just gotten done interviewing I'm a young woman at a cafe in a train station and I went back down the stairs to go get on the train and I get on the train and I'm seated there. And this is in July. And so students are out of school and they're getting ready to go on maybe a week of summer camp and they often meet at train stations. And so three young women, ages around 10 or 11, get on the train together. And there's clearly an adult with them, like a counselor who is telling them that while we ride the train, we're going to do self-introductions. And in your self-introduction, I want you to tell me your name, how old you are, and something about yourself. So the first young girl goes, she says her name, she says she's 11. And she says something like, I like pizza. And the next person um, states her name, her age. And she says something like, I play basketball. And the third girl says, my name is whatever it is. I'm 11 and I'm fat. And that was how she chose to introduce herself on their way to camp. And I just got lucky in the sense that I was sitting there thinking about issues around the body. But it really struck me that this young girl has decided that that's part of who she is already. And so much so that in this introduction format, which is very formulaic in Japan, that that has become part of her self-introduction. And so I think that really gets at what Claire's talking about in terms of how personal it becomes about how you see yourself and then how you represent yourself to others. Does that come, Cindy, from an environment where the undesirability is in your face, which is why an 11-year-old felt compelled to describe herself like that? Yes, I think that's absolutely the case. So when I was asking people in Japan, basically, do you make fun of others when you see large bodies? You know, how do you react when you see a large body? And people on the whole told me no. 
but they did say to me that that's what children do. So it struck me that particularly in elementary school and junior high school, these are probably spaces where children are made fun of by other children. And some people told me by PE teachers for the shape of their body, not conforming to how people felt that it should. So some people I spoke to told me that they can remember from PE class in elementary school that the child who was pochari or debu, so like chubby and a little bit fat, they would just be told, oh, don't even show up to PE because you're not going to be able to do these things that we're doing anyway because your body is too large. So I think definitely in these younger years is where a lot of that kind of language around the body happens and people hear it a lot. As people age, they understand that these are not appropriate things to say. And I think it becomes clamped down upon. We did learn though, that these kinds of shaming statements and stigmatizing statements still live in families. So around the dinner table, husbands to wives, wives to husbands, mothers to their adult sons. It still very much is a strong discourse within a family, even if you refrain from saying it out in public to strangers or acquaintances. I can add also to that around the idea of um, teasing and making fun of and that kind of vector around the body is very prominent in a lot of the comic work that happens, for example, on mainstream TV. That's not particular to Japan, but there is within Japanese comedy, uh, a very formulaic expression of what a comic body is. And it can often be a large body, a woman um, who is considered to be kind of not attractive and maybe a bit too brash and someone that can be simultaneously kind of teased, played with, become the full person. And that is not just the female body, but also the male body and increasingly queer bodies within that space too can occupy a very interesting position culturally of excess uh, that is both enjoyable to consume and to be entertained by, but also kind of a bit of a benchmark of how we should be aware of how we need to kind of take control and not overreach that excess. So within that space itself, mainstream, you know, comedy duos of women, often larger women, not large by any any stretch of the imagination, and part of their comedy is around the body itself. So that's the other part that feeds into, I think, um, how is it okay to tease someone or is this at the moment something that is playful and when's it kind of not playful anymore and that is pejorative or that is not to be done. I think that that can be managed maybe a little better in some spaces than it is in others. And Claire, the the thing that we haven't talked about and, and sort of seems extraordinary in the Japanese context is the fact that Japan celebrates the biggest of the big, the sumo wrestler. Yeah, the sumo body is a wonderfully beautiful body. And to watch a sumo wrestler wrestling is an awe to behold. There is a lot of uh, respect for the body of a wrestler and they have a specific position within society um, that is to do with strength and many other things that are culturally read into that body. But once the wrestler has retired, there's also a discourse of how to tame that body and to bring it back to the more mainstream version of that body. 
there's, you know, success stories of how, you know, sumo wrestlers have been able to then uh, slim down, for want of a better word, and become part of the mainstream. And then there are the quote-unquote failures where that is not possible. And the trauma and the anxiety around that is also portrayed in the media as well. And just to follow up on that, a woman I spoke with um, in Japan was telling me that after she returned from spending a year in France, she had gained about 20 kilos. And when she went to school one day, she overheard someone say, oh, look, the sumo you know, Osumo-san has returned, the sumo has returned. And in that sense, then we can also see how this culturally revered body of the actual wrestler can be then placed onto someone as a pejorative and a way to shame them. And of course, she was a woman too, which sumo wrestlers never can be. You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. And just a reminder to listeners about Asia Institute's online publication on Asia and its societies, politics and cultures. It's called the Melbourne Asia Review. It's free to read and it's open access at melbourneasiareview.edu.au. You'll find articles by some of our regular Ear to Asia guests and by many others. Plus, you can catch recent episodes of Ear to Asia at the Melbourne Asia Review website, which again, you can find at melbourneasiareview.edu.au. I'm Ali Moore, and I'm joined by Associate Professor Claire Marie from Asia Institute and cultural anthropologist Dr. Cindy Sturt-Streeterung from Arizona State University. We're talking about Japanese notions of body size. Claire, in Japan, how are the reasons behind weight gain and higher weights, you know, enunciated? Is it is it straight out eating? Is it lifestyle? Is it work-life balance? What's the sort of narrative behind it? I think that all of those play into the different representations. I was just looking back through the research that I've done around transformation and a makeover media. And a lot of that is around making the best of difficult situations and getting back on track, becoming in control of the body because you have kind of let yourself go either due to hard work in terms of, you know, your occupation or because of some kind of internal struggle and an inability to be able to control your eating and or get enough exercise, whatever that means. I mean, get enough exercise is a very is a very strange term. Enough exercise for who, in what conditions, when, why, and how are the questions that we need to ask about that. So, for example, one of the, the major queer queen personalities of the mid-2000s where we were getting a lot of the discourse around, you know, metabolic syndrome and, and the moral panic that Cindy has been talking about was kind of like the figure of beautiful legs and, you know, all of this cultural production about getting the best legs through slimming and different products. It's linked to consumption as well. But also before that, we have figures of everyday people who are 
oversized. They're deemed to be too big. And the transformation, the before and the after pictures. And one uh, younger person who ran from one end of the country to the other. And we had weekly updates of how they were going and how much weight they had lost and how they were battling their inner demons and they hadn't given up. This struggle, getting on top of it and rising to be able to control something that you've let become uncontrollable. And there's also a gendered element, you know, um, if you are looking to find romance, particularly heterosexual romance, then you need to be a certain shape. You don't want to be too big. You want to be attractive. There's all these kinds of discourses. So slimming in order to make yourself a viable product on the heterosexual market, we might put it that way. I mean, it sounds very cynical, but there is a market around that. And this is also a concept that has valency, I think, not just in Japan, but in other societies and cultures as well. And I was also going to say a little bit about disease. So the idea that if you are overweight, any disease that you have is kind of self-inflicted, that discourse, I think, too, is very strong. When we look at that gender lens, there's also, Cindy, isn't there, in Japan, a great deal of responsibility placed on women to not just keep themselves well, that personal responsibility side of things, but their entire families. Yes, that's what I was repeatedly told by women, uh, married women, I should say, that I spoke with, uh, women married to men, so in heterosexual relationships. And when I would ask them how their eating has changed over the years, and I would specifically ask around at the point of getting married and so forth, have the way you cook, the way you eat, has it changed? And they would always tell me, if they were married and had children, they would always tell me that the eating has changed because of children. They want to develop a wide palate of things that their children will eat so that they will be healthy and nutritious. So lots of vegetables. And then they wanted to be sure that their husbands were fed in a way that gave them uh, maximal nutrition without too many calories. And so I found over time that women, when we look across the narratives, women were repeatedly telling me about how they not only had to watch their own bodies and waistlines, but they really were responsible for their family's health and waistlines in particular. One woman I spoke to had just been married for about six months, and she told me in detail about her husband's ill health in terms of blood work and liver and kidney function. And she explained to me that if you looked at him, he looks quite thin, but he's clearly not well on the inside. And she lived in a multi-generational family with a grandmother who still did most of the cooking. And she described the meals that would be prepared every day and that her husband has had a radical change in his sort of health outcomes as measured in these various blood work ways. And she was quite pleased that she had been able to turn this situation around quickly, both for his own health, but also for their future. Again, that goes to that medicalization of, of weight. So let's look at that. And also, as Claire mentioned earlier, those annual uh, health checks or weight checks, really, for Japanese workers. Can you tell us, Claire, about the Metabo test? What is it and, and how does it work? Well, the Metabo test, I think, is basically um, measuring your girth. Am I correct in that, Cindy? It's actually quite fascinating in the sense that it's not just your girth. It measures your blood glucose. It measures a number of other blood issues. It looks at your blood pressure. It does measure your girth. And then it also is height and weight. 
And so those factors combined is how you either pass or fail and you're graded like uh, A through F, uh, whether you pass or fail the test. Okay. So the, the A is the, what we want. You want for, an right? A, correct. <laughs> yeah. You want an A. Yeah. And there's repercussions if we don't get the A, right? Correct. They lower you down yes. on the scale, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. But Claire, this is extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, well, it seems extraordinary to an Australian. This is uh, put in place as a mandatory requirement for all workers. I'm curious as to what people think about it. I mean, do they see it as being ultimately of benefit or do they see it as a huge intrusion into their own personal lives? I'm not quite sure if we've got any research on how people think about annual checks, right? They're what you do. They're what you have to do from the time that you enter school and right through if you're in full-time continuing employment in a company where your health insurance is also tied to your company, you know, you have to have a medical every year. So it's your responsibility as a worker to front up and to do this. So, I mean, personally, my first experience of them was when I was still in my late teens and at a school, but I also did them annually when I was in grad school in Japan. And then when I worked at universities, there was, you know, an annual health check that we all had. The students had it on kind of the day before, and then the staff um, had it kind of the next day. And so the, the medical team would roll in and they'd set up shop in one of the larger classrooms and there'd, there'd be like an X-ray unit and things like that that came in. The first time I experienced it was just something that I'd never experienced at all in Australia. But I mean, is Australia too lax on this is maybe something else. So it's a responsibility to yourself, to the society, to your employment, keeping your employment. I mean, it's just something you have to do, right? You have to do it every year. You just kind of do it. Cindy, I know, I mean, for example, in many places, including in Australia, for insurance purposes, you might need an annual medical. I guess the difference with this one is that it's not just a check that then determines whether you're, you know, you still get your insurance cover. It's actually a check that can then lead to intervention and, am I right, penalties to the employer if you're considered to be overweight? Yes, so that is correct. And I, I want to back up for just one minute and address a little bit about how people feel about these. We do know that when this law was being put into place, there was dissent. Manzenreiter has documented some of this where there was a lot of argumentation around not just the exam itself, but where did that information go? So part of it was this idea that all of your health information is then being passed to whom, who gets to have that and keep it and for how long. It was, of course, ultimately passed. Some people we know skip work on those days or skip the test, but ultimately they will eventually have to undergo it. We also know that people practice very rash dietary things prior to undergoing the test. So they'll stop eating or they'll take laxatives or they'll go on some of the very trendy diets where you just eat cabbage soup for two weeks in order to get the measures in place. Let me add one other thing. And that is when, however, you look at the Ministry of Health, Labor and Welfare's webpage, where they're talking about health statistics in Japan, one of the things leaped out at me as I was doing a little bit more work on these statistics for our very discussion. And that is in very large bolded font, the website makes it clear that 42.7% of people who underwent the annual medical exam reported that they sought additional help later because a variety of 
serious health problems had been revealed. And so I took that to understand it as a way of at least the government's website of letting us know that this is a good thing in these ways that we might not fully understand that things are caught that are devastating and people can be saved. And it's not just about weight. And it's not just about weight. Exactly. But back to your earlier question, which is, you know, so what are the longer term consequences of this? Amy Borovoy has looked into this and she has talked to both nutritionists and to people who are part of this annual exam. And what she has found is people who do not score in that A level, they could be put on a variety of sort of educational pathways. One might just be that you get encouraging messages to your phone or an email encouraging you to exercise more or eat better or make sure you're having enough vegetables. The next step after that is to be put into a counseling situation with a nutritionist so that it's not just sort of push notifications, but is actually face-to-face or something beyond just email notifications. And then yes, ultimately, my reading tells me that companies can be fined if too many of their employees are not passing this test. I'm still struggling to find strong documentation of statistics on which companies or how many. And so I keep looking for that kind of information. It's interesting that you talk about what's on the website, the fact that it's not just a narrative around weight, but it is a broader health narrative, which is very much goes to this whole conversation we've been having earlier about the medicalization of weight and tying that up with health. Cindy, you write that there is clear medical evidence that not all fat people are diseased. The narrative in Japan would seem to be different to that. Is that fair? Yes. So let me contextualize that just a little bit. Part of the way that we should think about this is population level versus individual level. So when we look at large population, like the Japanese government is doing, the Japanese government looks at its population and it says there seems to be associations between larger weights and some of these negative health outcomes like diabetes or high blood pressure. But when we begin to look at individuals and we look at an individual with a high weight, let's say, we don't know that they have diabetes they don't have diabetes or they don't have high blood pressure, potentially they're perfectly healthy. They have potentially, you know, a great functioning metabolic system. We can also look at people with low weights and find out that they actually have a variety of health issues at this individual level. So one of the things that's important to keep in mind is that once the society like Japan or US or Australia or Samoa or Paraguay, wherever we're looking, once we put the the lens on the individual, we are now making a false connection between population level arguments and an individual's health. And this is where I think we need to be really careful. I think that's a great point as well. I mean, both Cindy and I work with language and the the power of the way that this is talked about and framed and uh, the images, for example, around that uh, really kind of conflate that population level, individual level, which makes it very difficult for individuals themselves to make a space where they can talk about these things in a way that is open and understanding and non-threatening because the dominant discourse around it has placed the body in a certain vector and any amount of trying to go against that in any way can be um, negated through the use of the population discourse to kind of flatten that out. So I think for on the individual level, it can be a great source of distress and of anxiety 
And I think that that's really an area that is of great import when we talk about these things. Yes. And I just want to make this point really clear about distress and mental stress and anxiety. There is plenty of research that lets us know that people who perceive themselves as unacceptably large are at a very high risk for behaviors that are potentially disastrous to their health. They are at very high risk for uh, negative psychosocial outcomes, self-isolation, depression, eating disorders, or disordered eating. So we know that this emphasis on individuals and the size of their bodies has actually undermined efforts to try to make a body healthier at the individual level, not just at the population level. So these discourses around large bodies equal disease and ill health are absolutely undermining any national effort to try to get people to exercise more and eat better, for example. And how do you, and Claire, I'll put this to you first, how do you change that narrative? How do you break the nexus between, you know, diseased and unhealthy and overweight? Well, I think it's a very difficult thing to do because it is at the level of the individual and there is so much stigma that is attached to it. So to try and fight against that, it requires a greater understanding about the points that Cindy has touched on about how we talk to people around issues of the body, how we are sensitive to the narratives and the lived experiences of people and how we rejoice in all bodies, rejoicing in what your body can do rather than trying to fit it into something that is unattainable for the individual themselves. But isn't it also about education, about education? Yeah, I was going to get to education. I didn't want to go to education first. I mean, that's obvious, of course, education. But how? How do we do it? How do we get to education if we don't understand the way that language is being used? People don't understand that they are perpetuating this cause of distress. And I think that actually having a lot more research that shows the effects of this and how it is done in the everyday, which is the kind of research that we do on the the kind of everyday level of language. The vignette that Cindy gave earlier was around, you know, young children going to camp. That's kind of an educational framework. So how do educators then step in and shift the discourse? They need to understand how that discourse is coming within the spaces in which they're working. I don't think that that's understood. So understanding the power of this is also a big part. And then we can get to thinking about education around that because the education at the moment is kind of paternalistic. We have to take care of these poor bodies that are uncontrollable and are going to be riddled with disease. The focus is very much on controlling certain peoples. And Cindy, if we go back to that 11-year-old girl at the train station I'm guessing the teacher did not step in and say, why do you call yourself fat? You know, is that really appropriate? Correct. She did not. And I think you've asked the perfect question is if we know that stigmatizing bodies is stigmatizing an individual and a person and that this is distressing and causing problems, what do we do to fix that? And I would like to add to that education piece that I think education could help, but Part of what I've seen in educational campaigns around the body and health is actually nutrition lessons and caloric lectures 
which I actually think is not what needs to be done. That goes to the medicalization of the issue, doesn't it? Yes, because basically what those kinds of lectures or information is telling you is that you need to only eat this many calories a day, or you should eat these kinds of foods and you should run around the block five times or, or something like that. That's the exact same discourse, even if it is couched in, this is just good for you kinds of practices. Uh, one of my collaborators, anthropologist who works in Samoa, Jessica Hardin, one of the things that she does in classes that she teaches here in the US is that she makes students say the word fat several times out loud over the course of the semester, every time she gives a lecture. And part of her goal in doing that is trying to get students to say this word and not be afraid of it or not to feel distressed by it. Part of, I think the education has to be an embracing of a diversity of body styles. And the only way to do that is to see more pictures, have more exposure, to bodies of all shapes and sizes, doing all sorts of things, not just medicalizing and making the large body, the diseased body. Cindy, though, do you see any realistic uh, you know, idea of that actually happening in, a, in the context of Japan, particularly where wherever you look, the world is designed for a smaller person? So it's physically as well as, uh, you know, environmentally reinforcing this, you know, even if there's ads on a bus saying big is beautiful, that's not going to help when you can't get into a seat on the bus. Correct. This is precisely the issue is that, yes, we can have more diversity of body styles, but infrastructure has to change. The ways people talk about their own bodies have to change. Comedians or people, celebrities on TV who are large bodied should come up with other jokes. I mean, that's, it's easy for me to say that. I'm not a comedian. But, it's not, it's not easy <laughs> so, you comedian. know, it's easy for me to say, just change your shtick. But I, I think <laughs> I think it's so easy when we look at um, when we look at comedians who are large body the world over, they all are making fun of their own bodies. Uh, one thing I'm watching for in Japan is something that colleagues and I have noticed here in the US and probably about the last five to eight years. And that is at department stores, not the super high-end ones, the more of the middle of the range ones, the ones that have a little bit of everything, they have moved to mannequins of varying sizes. And they use those mannequins for bathing suits, for trousers, and for nightgowns. And so you can see a display of mannequins that are slimmer and larger at these kinds of stores. So I'm waiting to see that in Japan, to be honest. Like if I walk into a Uniqlo in Japan, I want to see mannequins of varying sizes for example. That would be great. Wouldn't that be fabulous? It would be amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I think some of the positive things that have come up, for example, for the, the huge celebrity status of people like Matsuko Deluxe, who is a queer gay man who um, is of a, a large size and wears wonderful flowing gowns and um, is loved by many people all over Japan. We do have figures like that in the media and also Watanabe Naomi you know she has millions and millions 9.3 million followers on her Instagram and she's a global phenomenon she also has her own clothing brand she appears in some of the high-end fashion shoots so those kind of images are gradually I think 
appearing more and more, which I think is a really positive thing. So Claire, are you optimistic that that we will see a celebration of greater diversity in Japan? Well, I think that's a really tricky question. I just like, I'm such a cynic, Ali, you know me. Um, I think we are seeing greater diversity in representations and I see it in social media. I see it around the work that feminist scholars do and gender scholars do and queer studies scholars do. But I think the overarching thing is that this mainstream idea is very entrenched and it's, it's in kind of all of the little corners of daily life. That is something that will take time, I think. Yeah. Cindy? I I agree. When I'm looking at my Twitter feed, I follow some Japanese women tweeters who are larger bodies, sizes, and they also do some um, modeling and they'll post pictures. And I think if we can find more spaces that are sort of simultaneously public, not celebrity per se, but in these social media platforms where more people can see that and maybe join in or at least follow and get increased exposure, perhaps over time we can build slowly more embracing complexity and variation and begin to then demand other things change like infrastructure. I think it's slow going though. I think it's slow going. Well, Claire and Cindy, thank you so much. It's a fascinating topic. And as you say, Cindy, slow going. And it's one that hopefully we will revisit in a couple of years' time and see, you know, where the research that's being done at the moment is leading us, and particularly when it comes to public policy. A huge thank you for your time. Thank you, Claire, and thank you, Cindy. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Just before I let you both go, uh, is there somewhere that particularly on social media that people can look to see more of your work and your insights? Cindy, can you point people to a place to find more of you? Yes. So I am on Twitter at Cindy L. Sturtz. You can also find me by just looking at asu.edu and putting in Cindy Sturtz. And that's S-T-U-R-T-Z. Correct. <laughs> and Claire, where can we find more of you? Yeah, I can be found on Twitter at Claire Marie UOM. And I also tweet in the capacity of the International Gender and Language Association president, Igala president. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Our guests have been Gender Studies Specialist, Associate Professor Claire Marie from Asia Institute and Anthropologist Dr Cindy Sturtstriederun from Arizona State University. Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify or SoundCloud. And if you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And please help us by spreading the word on social media. This episode was recorded on the 22nd of July, 2021. Producers were Calvin Parham and Eric Van Bemmel of Profactual.com. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2021, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.